Well, I like Judge Judy. I don't know about you, but I just like her. I, I, I catch her more frequently than you might think because I'm kind of a split shift kind of a person. You know, I like to get up real early in the morning and start working and start doing the things that I do as a pastor during the day. And I often have something going on at night, you know, a bunch of stuff going on at night. So I like to take a break in the late afternoon and just kind of go home and chill. And she comes on at 4 o'clock every day, doesn't she, right? You know, who knows what I'm talking about here? Can I get a witness for Judge Judy here? Come on. All right? And you can just chill out and you can listen to her. You always know there's going to be a cell phone case or an unpaid rent case, right? Very seldom is there some big surprise about what... What I really like about her is her candor, right? She just comes out and says it, right? Yeah. They don't keep me here because I'm gorgeous. They keep me here because I'm smart. You're lying, sir. I like that, don't you? I love the way she makes people take personal responsibility for themselves, yeah? It's like, you blew it, you're going to have to pay for it. I'm sorry, sir, I don't care. <laughs> Done. Boof. I love that. She just brings some excitement into my life, otherwise <laughs> very dull life. But I always walk away with a question from Judge Judy, and that's who judges Judy? <laughs> this judgment thing. As Christians, it can be tough, can't it? This judgment business, the subject of rendering judgment, can be something that's very confusing. When am I judging someone? When am I, when am I behaving as a Christian in a way that counts as judging someone? In a way that God doesn't want me to judge someone? Where is there? A, when do I cross the line between discernment about a person and their character? And judging them. How do I do that? When do I, how do I know where that line is? I don't want to be a judgmental person, do you? I don't want to get caught up in that. How do I know what that really is? Is there ever a time for judgment in the church? Fascinating to me that as we've been moving through the Sermon on the Mount, you know, just one passage at a time these last couple months, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that this week we come to Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus said, don't judge. Do not judge. And uh, what's fascinating about it is I was, you know, preparing the message and everything as I was normally do during the week. When Karen and I had the privilege of doing a conference in at a vineyard church in Illinois this Friday and Saturday. We got back late last night. And uh, uh, yesterday morning I woke up in my hotel room and opened the Jesus is Calling book. I just really like that devotional. And it was all about don't judge. Don't you just love it when those coincidences happen, you know? I do too. So just in the course of uh, moving along through this Sermon on the Mount, we're going to spend a couple of more weeks here that I'm feeling like I'm going to be led toward uh, some other things. But in the course of this, here's what Jesus said. He said, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Lord, we come before you in this portion of your word, and we need you for this, Lord. We need you to understand this. We need you to be able not only to get our heads around it, but our hearts around it. We need you to come and deliver us from our natural inclinations toward judgment and to bring us to the place of understanding how gracious you've been to us. Show us, Father, the distinctions between judgment and discernment and how this all works. We don't want to be naive and foolish about this, Lord. We want to be wise and spirit-filled by this. And so we lay this word before you and we ask you to explain it to us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So first of all, Jesus said, do not judge. Sounds pretty serious, doesn't it? Do not judge. It's very matter-of-fact about it. Do not judge. Don't, whatever judgment is, we have to agree, Jesus is saying don't do it. He's not saying, well, it's a bad idea to judge. He's not saying try not to judge. He's saying don't do it. Do not judge. It's a command. It's a command from God. Do not judge. Now, I've noticed something about the commands from God in both the Old and the New Testament. And that is wherever there's a command such as this, a command, not a suggestion, but a command, that it's always dealing with something that is meant to kill us. That wherever there's a command from God where he comes and says, do not do that, he's rescuing us from death. And so when he says, do not commit adultery, very clearly, he's rescuing us from something, from death. When he says, do not murder, do not steal, he's rescuing us from death. And so when the commands are this clear, and he says, do not do this, it's a rescue operation from God to cut the death out of our lives. And so when he says, do not judge, it means that as we participate in judgment, we're inviting death to reign. Do not do these things. As a young Christian, I thought that's all that being a Christian was, was just trying to get, get enough of the do-nots done so I still qualified. Can anybody relate? And I thought, boy, there's a lot of do-nots. Gosh, he was just sucking the life out of me. The only life I knew was the life of do-nots. And I thought God was trying to take something away from me that I wanted. And I discovered that the Bible is true. The Bible says that God withholds no good gift from those he loves. He withholds nothing good from us. Anytime he comes and says, do not, he's, he's withholding from us something that brings us death. Do not. And the cool part of the commands when God says so clearly, do not do that, is because not only is he, with, is he rescuing us from death, but he's scraping out a place for life to come. Because whenever God says, do not judge, for example, when he says, do not something, he's rescuing us from death, he's cutting out the death, and in that place, he wants to put life. Boom! I've got something better. Boom! You relate? 
You believe that? Or you just want to believe that? It's true. God is cutting out the cancer of our natural inclination, and in that space, he's putting the life, eternal life. So it is our natural inclination to be a certain way. It's my natural inclination to deceive. But God says, don't lie. Tell the truth. And in telling the truth, he cuts that natural inclination out, and he puts life, and the truth sets me free. Got it? So it's my natural inclination, my human inclination to be an adulterer. But God says, don't do that. Follow me into a path where you don't do that. I want to cut that out of your life. Because in that space, when when you let me cut that, I want to put life. And every one of the commands that are so obvious and stern toward us and uncomfortable, can we talk? Are meant to rescue us from our natural human inclination, cut out the cancer so that life can be put in its place. Do you want that? All right, make sure you hold on to that thought as I move through this message. So it's very clear, do not judge. By participating in a lifestyle of judgment, you're perpetuating the devilish death of the natural inclination of man. God's got something better, so don't do it. And then he goes on to talk about the reciprocal nature of judgment. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged. And with the measure you use toward judging others, that's going to come back on you. So as you judge others, you are inviting others to judge you. As you judge, you are inviting yourself to be subject to judgment. It comes right back on you. Now this is not karma. This is a biblical principle that goes like this, as a man sows, that shall he also reap. So what you plant is what's going to grow. If you have fallen into patterns of judgment of others, and you're planting critical judgment, then that's the garden you're living in. Yeah? Because as you sow, that you will also reap. But if by God's power and grace you are delivered from that, and you come to plant forgiveness and plant grace and plant life, then that's the garden that grows around you. Which one you want to live in? That's what he's saying here. There's a reciprocal nature to it, and he's trying to rescue us from death. And then he goes on with this talk about specks and planks in our eyes. And he goes on and he... He says, you know, with respect to looking at somebody else and go, boy, you got troubles, bub. Man, you're a mess, Pat. Look at you. Look at that. Look at that speck in your eye. You're all together except for that one little thing, Pat. And I feel righteous enough to come and talk to you about it. And here's how he says to go about that. He says, why do you look at this speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? You ever have a speck of sawdust in your eye? Nasty, isn't it? Mm. I got one this week, cutting some stuff up and running the circular saw in a way I shouldn't have been. And funny, if you put your face in front of that thing, you get sawdust in your eyes. 
How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? He says, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now notice, Jesus is not saying that we shouldn't talk to one another about the specks. This is part of Christian brotherhood and Christian sisterhood. That Pat would come to me and say, Tom, I know you can't see this because it's in your eye, but I need to talk to you about a speck. And Pat, you've been with me for 20 years. If you came to me and told me about a speck, I'd listen. Not so much Tom Anderson, but I would you. <laughs> All right? I would listen. And that's part of a relationship of two brothers who have walked together for a long time in the Lord, yeah? And I think you would want me to do the same. There's a spe- but, he's, but Jesus says there's a process here. He says, first get the plank out of your eye, or you're never going to be able to see that speck clear. How do you get the plank out of your eye? You get your plank, the plank out of your eye <clears throat> by coming to Jesus Christ, coming to the cross, and admitting your full need of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of your life. Of, of just coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, I have so much sin in my life. The pervasive nature of sin has touched essentially every part of my life. And I'm powerless to do anything about this. I need you to come and forgive me of this and set me free from these planks in my eyes. That's an authentic experience with the Lord. And he said, do that first before you go worrying about specks you see in Mike's eye over there. You got a little speck in your eye there, brother? He said, do this the plank thing first. Why? Because you'll never see clearly. You'll never see clearly what that speck is. You'll never be a blessing to that brother or sister in talking about that speck unless you are humbled before the Lord and understand, but there, but for the grace of God go I, right? You'll never do it. But the other thing is, is because only then are you going to be approaching that person in love and not judgment. I want somebody who loves me to come and tell me about the speck. I can't see the speck. It's in my eye. I want somebody who loves me, who has invested in me, who has gained that place of trust, who shows me that they love me. And you want that too. But until you, until you have that experience with the Lord and live in that ongoing understanding that Jesus Christ and His grace is the only thing that causes you to have a place at the Father's table, you won't have the love for somebody when you go to talk about this back. But when you do, you will. Make sense? And so if you're a person who wants to go talk to somebody about the speck, don't go. Your plank's too big. Don't go. Deal with the plank. You need to get on your face before God and beg Him not to make you go talk to that brother or that sister about that speck. When you get to that place, so grateful that God has pulled a lumberyard out of your face, (laughs) when you get to that level of gratitude, true, gracious gratitude and love for God, then you may be ready to be used by the Holy Spirit carefully, delicately, surgically to hold still, Pat, I'm going to get this for you because just trust me, Pat. Does that make sense? You've got to have the plank experience. 
You've got to live in the plank experience before you're going to be ready to help somebody with the speck in their own eye. But what about the judgment thing? I thought you were going to talk about judgment. When are we judging? When, when are we crossing some line where we look at you and go, that, that's not just a discernment or a concern for you. When am I crossing a line and I'm, I'm becoming a judgmental person and I'm in error? Well, uh, let's do a case study, all right? Let's begin by saying that, recognizing that, particularly in the New Testament, the word sin it comes from one Greek word, which can be translated as an archery term, missing the mark. So if you shoot the arrow at the target and you miss the perfect bullseye, that's the analogy in the New Testament to sin. You might hit the target, but you didn't hit the bullseye. So sin is defined in the New Testament as missing the mark, as imperfect. Does that make sense so far? That's an important part of this. Now, how, how do... Well, let's start with this. How many of you have ever sinned? How many of you missed the mark, just out of curiosity? Quite, quite the most of you then, huh? Any of you uh, ever uh, go over the speed limit by one mile an hour? Bible says you sin. All right. On the way here? <laughs> Today? And Will on the way home? <laughs> yep. So, it's, uh, it's common, isn't it? The Bible is true in saying that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That everybody has missed the mark. That's a universal condition. So, when are we judging someone? Well, we're judging someone when we look at how much they've missed the mark and, uh, and we're, we are in judgment of their salvation. So if I look at Pat and I go, ooh, Pat, I don't think you're saved anymore because of the things that I see, the speck in your eye or the plank in your eye. When I, when I render judgment on another person as to whether or not they're a Christian because of the behavior I see, then I'm judging them. Now, this was spoken into a cultural context of the time when, you know, obviously the Pharisees were all about the external, right? And they were rendering judgment as to whether you were right or wrong with God, and they were occupying that position. And I want you to understand something about this kind of judgment, that when you take it upon yourself to say, that person's not a Christian. If they were a Christian, they'd never behave that way. When you take it upon yourself you are committing the most heinous kind of, adult, uh, of idolatry. And idolatry is what? Putting someone else in the place of God, right? And when you are deciding to decide whether someone else is a Christian or not, who are you putting in the place of God? Yourself. You're deciding that that judgment throne now belongs to you. And that you have some moral superiority or spiritual superiority, some wisdom, some depth of revelation that gives you the right to decide that because you see certain behaviors in a person's life, although they're claiming Christ as their Savior, when you see those behaviors, say, can't be, they're not a Christian. And when you do that, you are judging. You're no longer discerning, assessing out of love and hope and care for someone, but you're judging. Does that make sense? And Jesus said this, Another layer of this judgment that I think is Jesus was talking about was the judgment of someone's value. 
because of behaviors in their life. Let's say, okay, well, I'm not going to decide whether they're a Christian or not. If they're authentically claiming Christ, I guess I don't have any business questioning that. But, you know, because of the things I see in their life, uh, they're of less value than the people I see who don't have those things in my life. They're like second class, third class, fourth class people, and we begin to evaluate people on the basis of their behavior. Newsflash. The Bible says we are all of exactly the same worth to God. And it says that because only the owner of a thing gets to declare its worth. Only the owner of a thing gets to declare its worth. How many of you own something that has practically no commercial value, but because of the circumstances under which it came to you is a priceless thing? Anybody in this room know what I'm talking about? And I could come to you and say, what do you have that piece of junk for? And you say, oh, that's not a piece of junk. You're the owner. You get to decide it's worth, and only you. And nobody can come in from the outside and say, you're wrong. You're the owner. Well, let's go beyond the owner. What about the creator of a thing? Did you ever make something? Did you ever have your kid make you a pot at art class that you weren't sure which way to hold it for it to be up? And it was priceless to you? Of course. Only the owner of a thing, only the creator of a thing gets to determine its worth. The opinions of others are irrelevant. Who owns you? Whose son are you? Whose daughter are you? <laughs> and only God gets to declare your worth. And we are of equal worth to God. We are of equal worth to God. For God so loved the, how's that go? World that he gave his only son. So another way of, of looking at this is, is saying, well, I'm going to decide what a person is worth. And you know, that person's so messed up. What, what, what worth are they? That's judgment. And it's wrong. Okay. Well, let's uh, take this a step further and let's do a case study. In other words, let's get real specific. And here's where you're going to have to buckle up and trust me. You know, I have, I have never been on a witch hunt in my life. I make very little reference to individual kinds of sin. Uh, I simply wanted to use one that I think we could all understand and connect with. If this causes um, conviction in you, don't let the devil come and say that I'm judging you because I am not. Because as I will show you, we are no different in the sight of God, regardless of how faithful or unfaithful you are to what I'm about to say. So let's use as an example, and we could use so many from the Bible, one of the most obvious examples in Scripture, and that is our human sexuality. So God made us as sexual creatures, which is both wonderful and terrifying, isn't it? I mean, can we just say at the outset, sex is weird, right? I mean, can we just say that? So it's going to be a slippery bank to, to work with here. But as we read the Bible from cover to cover, we see that there's a consistent message in the Bible about what the center of the target would be. The center of the target. That if a person were completely faithful sexually to the clear teaching of the Bible, 
then you can't miss this one. It's called monogamous heterosexuality. That is the clear teaching of the Bible. There can be no mistake. By saying this, I am very sensitive to the fact that there are people in this room who may not be monogamous and may not be heterosexual. I am not judging anyone in this room. Your value does not change for me one iota. I don't even think about that. And so I just want to be clear in saying that out loud. So monogamous heterosexuality, the, the witness of the Bible, is for this reason, the Bible says three times, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So that's the center of the target. I make no apology for that. I'm telling you that that's the center of the target. Anyone who tries to reinterpret various passages of Scripture in order to accommodate that not being the center of the target, also, when they throw out those portions of Scripture, you are also throwing out the portions that you're clinging to, like God demonstrates His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So you can't throw out the portions of the Bible that you don't like and just hold on to the ones that save you. Does that make sense? I mean, we're a Bible church. We believe the Bible. The Bible says a thing, and it's true whether we like the thing that it says or don't like the thing that it says. So I'm just telling you, as one who has read the Bible a couple of times, who is educated beyond his intelligence in Bible interpretation that uh, there is no other way to read the Bible from front to back other than that the center of the target is that the full expression of sexual intimacy is meant to be between a man and a woman who are married. That's it. That's the center of the target. All right? So we could say that I guess if a person is living right there, they nailed it! Here's the problem. Nobody lives there. Nobody. Jesus went so far as to say, if a man looks at a woman with lust in his heart, he's already committed adultery with her. Oh, come on. I cannot believe that there's an honest person with hormones racing through your veins that, that can say, in all of your life, in all of your life, the thought has never crossed your mind. Perhaps you're here. Please finish the message. <laughs> you may have the remote. So, in reality, nobody, nobody. And, okay, say, so, no, I'm, I'm cool with that. All right, don't make me start making a list of the things. Somewhere you're not cool, right? Somewhere you're not cool. Because when you just told me I'm totally cool with that, you just lied. <laughs> so, at best, everybody's here. Those are the good ones. 
Those are the ones who have managed to find the power of God for riveted focus and self-control. But nobody's in the center spot. In reality, it might be here. It might be drifting entirely from monogamy or marriage or heterosexuality. We might be drifting entirely. That might be a major struggle for you in your life. It might be. I acknowledge that. I'm sensitive to that. Maybe you're here. Here's the deal. If you're there and you look at me and say, I'm depending on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of all of my sins, I believe you. I believe you and I don't judge you. I believe you and I don't judge you. And if you're there, if you're there, whatever the circumstances are, you are of the, exactly the same value to me as anyone else. Exactly. It does not factor into my relationship with you in judgment. You say, well, you know, I don't know if I should spend any time with that person because they got this list of stuff. Because in reality, if you go through the teachings of the Scripture, every single one of us is on the third circle about something. Amen? Amen. Surprisingly quiet this morning, church. (laughs) So in reality, we don't have a place to stand for judgment, do we? Because if we judge one person because they crossed over some behavioral line for us, we have to judge everybody. And in reality, there's only one person who ever lived in the center of that target, and that's Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins. He was the perfect, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. So there's no room for judgment. There's no room. Is there ever a case when discernment approaches judgment? Yeah. It's tragic. And it's heartbreaking. And the Bible says, let judgment begin with the house of God. Meaning that there are painful and rare occasions When someone is deemed as a physical, spiritual, or emotional threat to a fellowship, and the under-shepherd of Jesus has to send them away. It's terrible. It's happened twice for me in 35 years of ministry. Twice in 35 years. I've had to say to somebody, You can't be here anymore. I don't feel like the flock is safe with you here. You got to go. There's lots of Bible for this. There's plenty of Bible to back this kind of thing up. But you need to know that whenever it happens, it happens painfully, prayerfully, and as a last resort. 
And in no case, in no case, do I attach to that a judgment regarding the validity of that person's salvation or their worth to God. I've just known they can't be here anymore. So Jesus started this Sermon on the Mount with happy, happy are the, happy are the. He said, I want you to be happy. And by the time he gets to this judgment thing about not judging each other, everybody's on their journey. He's saying, if you fall into patterns of judgment, you're not going to be happy. And you know the judgmental people you know? Do they seem happy? No. They're hurting. There's something broken inside. There's something they want healed and can't figure their way out. Well, I believe God is here in the power of his Holy Spirit to set you free from patterns of judgmentalism. If you want to be set free and heal that wound. Because there's really only one judgment that I think we should really ever be concerned about. And that is the judgment of God in our lives. The Bible says it's appointed unto every man once to die. And after that, the judgment. So we're all going to die. I don't think there's any argument against that, right? Each we're going to die in turn. Somebody in this room is going to be the next one of us to die. I know. Buzzkill. And we're going to stand before God. And we're going to face a judgment. And I, I don't know about you, but I got nothing. I got nothing to offer him. So I'm going to let Jesus do all the talking for me. I'm going to fall on my face. I'm going to let Jesus do all the talking. I'm not going to make excuses. I'm not going to argue back. I'm just going to say, I'm with him. Are you with him? Are some of you in this place today and you say, I want to be with him. Are some of you here today and say, today's my day that I want to cross over the line from not being with him to being with him. I want to invite him into my life as Savior and Lord of my life. You can do that. You can make that authentic decision to make today, September 14th, 2014, the day that you crossed over from death to life. In just a few minutes, we're going to have people standing up here offering to pray with you. They're prepared to hear you say that. I want to, I want to come to God today. And they're prepared to hear you say that and help you pray your way into that relationship. They'll help you every step of the way give you a Bible to take home with you so you can begin reading and understanding about the Lord. And you're invited to come. If right now you're going, I don't know if I am ready for the judgment because a person who knows Christ has assurance in the judgment. Has assurance that when you say, I'm with him, you've been too late because he's already going to have said, he's with me. Father, I just pray your blessing in this time that we have here remaining these few minutes that we have worship you sing a song to you empty the contents of our hearts over to you god but also to pray and to pray for healing for the sick deliverance for those who are bound up and 
addictions and life-controlling things. Those who are suffering great disappointment and those whose relationships are so fractured. So many people with so many things, God. People who are between jobs and just need you to feed them. So many people here today, and we pray also, Father, for anybody here who's at that place of just saying, I, I, I get it now. There'll be a judgment, and there's nothing I can do to get ready except invite Jesus in. So I pray for that, Lord. I pray that there's something about today, something about the way it was sung or the way it was said that finally gets to that place in each person's heart. Lord, we love everybody here the same. It's complicated, though. Because we have an inclination toward judgment. We have an inclination to rationalize ourselves by looking at somebody who we consider you worse off than us. And so, Father, would you release us from that nonsense? Would you show us that it's only because of your grace that we're in this house and at your table? Would you show us that and would you make this a place of of open arms, of second chances? Thank you, Lord. We invite you to come and move among us in kingdom power. In the name of Jesus, amen. Hey, church, why don't we stand together and worship the Lord?